All right, I'm going to give you a pop quiz. All right, you didn't expect that. Don't worry, it won't be hard. Don't answer yet. I've got a couple questions. What is the generation that's commonly referred to as the me generation? Don't answer yet. What is the generation that is marked by a spirit of individual freedom and possibility? What's the generation that has divorced at a higher rate than any other previous one? What is the generation who's so used to success that it created the participation trophy? Do you have an answer in your mind? I bet a lot of you are thinking in your mind, oh, this has to be the millennial generation, right? Well, if you're saying that, you would be wrong. <laughs> this, is, this describes the baby boomer generation. Now, okay, right away, I know what you're thinking. We can learn lessons from this. One is not to paint with too broad of a stroke, right? There are exceptions to these major generalizations. But another lesson from this is that every generation tends to magnify its strengths, minimize its sins, and elevate itself above the generation that comes after it. In other words, really since the beginning of time, people have said some form of, Kids these days just don't get it. And the same people who said that, say that since the beginning of time often gloss over the fact that when they were a kid, they probably didn't get it either. <laughs> now, yes, while some problems of each generation might be a little bit different, while some problems of one generation might be worse than another, the root remains the same from generation to generation. Every single one of us inherits sin. So to be fair to the baby boomers in the, in the room, every generation is a me generation. Every generation is bent away from God and toward itself. We just might express it in different ways. So what hope does a generation have to break this cycle? What hope do you have to break this cycle, to be different from your parents or your grandparents? Well, maybe your hope is just saying, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I am going to just resolve not to be like my mom and dad. Well, friend, good luck with that. The only hope you have to break this cycle is if God intervenes. God will have to show up in a way that you don't deserve. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just saying, yes, I'm waiting for that to happen. Let me tell you the good news, friend. It has already happened. He has already intervened. So we're going to see today. And in, in the part where we are in the book of Numbers, we see the transition from the wilderness generation to the promised land generation. The wilderness generation are the people whom God delivered out of slavery to Egypt. And then while they're in the wilderness, this place in between Egypt and the promised land, God feeds them and sustains them. He even makes a way for them to dwell with him in their midst. And he brings them to the edge of their new home and they get to preview it and they come back and give a report. And then they refuse to go into this place God has said he will give them. And so God gives them what they want. 
He tells the wilderness generation, okay, you will die in the wilderness. But God says, I will still keep my promise. You might not be the ones who enter the promised land, but your children will get to enter the promised land. So today we get to see what happens when the last of the wilderness generation dies and the promised land generation begins. So some big questions hang over the chapters we'll study today in Numbers 20 and 21. Questions like, how can this new generation be different from their parents? How can this new generation actually enter the rest that God has in store for them? Well, as we walk through these chapters, we'll see at least four different answers of how they can do this. They can do this not through Moses, but through God. Secondly, they can do this not through their achievement, but through God's blessing. Third, they could do this not through their own protection, but through God's provision. And finally, they could do this not by their performance, but by God's power. So let's jump in. If you're not there with me yet, turn with me to Numbers chapter 20, uh, beginning in verse 1. Invites you to open the Bible and keep the Bible open the entire time. Look at how hard it just was. This was so easy. Page 128, friend, if you're not looking, not only will you be lost in life, you'll be lost today. So Numbers chapter 20, page 128. Uh, So the promised land generation can break the cycle. They can be different from their parents. They can enter the rest that God has in store for them. How can they do this? Well, the first answer might surprise you. They can do this not through Moses, as good of a guy that he's been. They can do this only through God. Numbers chapter 20 begins with some table setting for us, setting down some plates, some forks, some knives. So they'll set the table for what will be the main event. Verse 1 tells us when this is going on. It tells us where this is going on. It tells us what's going on in the background. Uh, When is this going on? It says this is the first month of the year. Uh, What's important about that is this isn't just the first month of any year. This is the first month of the 40th year after they have left Egypt. Well, you say, Steve, how do you know that? Because it doesn't say that. Well, you have to keep reading. If you keep reading in Numbers 20, you'll read that Moses' brother, Aaron, dies around this time. If you keep reading on to Numbers chapter 33, it will tell us that Aaron died in the 40th year after the Israelites left Egypt. So that means that in between Numbers 19 and the beginning of Numbers 20, there's something like a 38-year gap with, with nothing mentioned of what happens during that 38 years. You know, this happens from time to time in the Bible. Just this long gap of time, nothing recorded. Probably a lot of lessons to learn from us, for us from that. Maybe one of them is, you know, not all of life is about just extraordinary effort. Most of life is just about ordinary, everyday faithfulness. But what's most important about that is that God had uh, said that it, 40, it would take 40 years for the wilderness generation to die off. And here we are at that timeline. Back to some table setting. Numbers 20, verse 1, also tells us where this is happening. It says this is happening in a place called Kadesh. Now, there's been lots of places mentioned in Numbers so far, but this place can sound familiar. 
The last time they were here was back in Numbers 13. Last time they were in Kadesh is when they sent a bunch of spies to go out and look at the promised land. And so here they are 40 years later in that same place. Just some table setting, Numbers 20, verse 1. Last thing it tells us is what's going on in the background. The leading woman of Israel, Miriam, Moses' sister, dies. It's a, a landmark death in the wilderness generation. So in the background of what's about to happen is the grief of Moses losing his sister. Now, Miriam and Moses has had their up and downs. You could go back and read Numbers 12. But clearly, from that chapter 2, Moses loves his sister. Clearly, I would assume that Moses would have been in some grief at the loss of his sister. And I wonder, given what Moses is about to do, if he just acknowledged to the Lord his weakness during this time, that he would have leaned a little bit harder on God's grace. That's going to be key for what we're about to see. So Numbers chapter 20 continues. We come to what is by now a really familiar scenario to us in the book of Numbers. The people come to a place of scarcity. They don't have any food and they don't have any water. They go to Moses and Aaron and they complain. So keep this in mind. This is mainly a new generation of people, right? But their complaint is a little different from their parents. You see that in verse five. So when their parents didn't have any food or water, like their instant reflex was like, let's just go back to Egypt. We had it good in Egypt, not their kids. Verse five, they say, we want grain and figs and vines and pomegranates. That's the fruit of the promised land. They say, you're not leading us to the place you've promised us. So yeah, their complaint's a little bit different, but like those progressive commercials, they are turning in to their parents. <laughs> Still a lot like them. Look at verse three. They say, we would have been better off if we had just died off with everybody else. Verse four, they tell Moses and Aaron that you guys brought us to this evil place to die. Their parents have said like the exact same thing. So we've noticed it pretty much every week as we've been in numbers, but here we see it again. It's a new generation, but it's the same old song and dance. They have a rewritten version of history and they have a blindness to God's grace. They didn't consider that they hadn't died in the wilderness because God had still promised them the land. All right, so... You all heard a little bit earlier that, that Kate and I are, uh, Kate is pregnant. We're expecting our, our, our first baby. If you didn't hear that, that's your plug to get here for announcements. <laughs> now, what I heard is scary when you become a, a mom or a dad is, that, is when you see your kids pick up your bad habits. When you see your kids act like you act, say the things that you say that you know you probably shouldn't say. It seems like the same thing's happening right here in Numbers. So our hope is not just that God would help us to be faithful models for our kids. Our hope is that when we inevitably fail, God would overcome the ways that we fall short. That would be our prayer. That as parents, we would point more to the Lord than we point and lift up ourselves.
Even for kids in the room, kids, if you still live with your mom and your dad. Uh, God tells you to remember a couple things. He says to respect and listen to your parents. I know the last thing you want to hear. But he also tells you, I think in a way, to remember that your parents aren't Jesus. That only Jesus is Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Your mom and dad need Jesus as much as you do. I think it's important to remember that as a kid. So anyway, back to the story. The people, after the people complain, Moses and Aaron go to the Lord. They go to the tabernacle. And God instructs Moses what to do in verse 8 of Numbers 20. I want you to look there because the details are really important. God says, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And look at what Moses does next on into verse nine. Moses took the staff from before the Lord. Pause. This is likely Aaron's staff that budded with flowers and almonds that we saw last week from chapter 17. This is the staff they kept in the tabernacle. All right, back into verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Another time out. Okay, you read this already, you can start to sense Moses is getting in trouble. Already, you can start to pick up a little bit of a condescending tone from big old number 10, Moses. Rebels? These aren't their parents. They haven't established any patterns yet. And it's ironic because in his hand, Moses is holding the staff that buds with flowers and almonds. And God had told them that this staff is a sign for y'all that you should stop complaining. And as Moses holds that staff, what is he doing? Complaining. But not only does Moses elevate himself above the rest of the people, as if he hasn't rebelled before either, He also takes credit that belongs to God. That pronoun is pretty devastating, isn't it? Shall we bring water for you? Verse 11, Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. God told him to speak to the rock. Moses strikes the rock. Now, I wonder if that detail of striking the rock twice is significant. I wonder, now the text doesn't say, but I wonder if Moses struck the rock one time and then nothing happened. And I wonder if that was God's way of fulfilling his promise that he says in 1 Corinthians 10, that God will always provide a way of escape. He will not let you be able to be tempted beyond what you are able So I wonder if Moses strikes the rock rock the first time, nothing happens if God just waits. Hey, Moses, are you going to come to your senses? Nope, I'm going to strike this again. And then what happens at the end of verse 11? Water comes out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. Now, there's a lot of fallout from this incident. The first fallout comes with Moses and Aaron themselves. God tells them in verse 12, Because you did not believe in me, 
to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. We say, hold on a minute, God. This seems a little bit harsh. Now, God, are you reading the same Bible that I'm reading? Because I never saw Moses or Aaron tell you that we don't believe in you anymore. I never heard them say, God, we don't think you're that special anymore. Well, just like the guys back in Numbers 13, Moses and Aaron didn't have to say it. They showed it. It's a reminder that your behavior, including maybe especially your sin, is always deeper than you think it is. It's always deeper than you think it is. Your behavior shows what you really love. Your behavior shows what you really want, what you really trust, what you really care about. So when Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock, his behavior communicated, God, I believe my way is better than yours. And my friend, that is what you communicate every single time you sin. When Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to it, Moses communicates, I need respect and I'm not getting it. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes for me to get respect. This under the surface motivation reminds us that your sin is not as shallow as you think it is. It reminds you that your sin is not as small as you think it is. I've heard a lot of people say this. It's not original to me. You and I have never committed a small sin because you and I have never sinned against a small God. But what about the people? What about the people who witnessed all this? This new generation who had complained, who saw Moses disobey, who even still receive water from the rock. What would be the fallout from, for them? What would be their final impression from this incident? Well, God tells us in verse 13, he gives us the meaning of what just happened. He says, through this time, he upholds himself as holy. Now, when you think of holy, you probably think of this is God being sinless and pure, which that is part of God's holiness. But really think of holiness as God's godness, his uniqueness. Through this time, God upholds himself as uniquely trustworthy, that he is worth trusting enough to follow his every command. Through this time, God shows himself uniquely patient and merciful. If this generation was going to make it, if they're going to be different from their moms and from their dads, well, then they're going to need a leader who is more patient and more merciful than Moses. Yeah, Moses was patient and merciful, but what happens here? When Moses' anger boils over, God's grace gushes out. What, what would this mean for them? Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't go further on to the New Testament. The New Testament reflects on this incident in a couple of ways. It reflects on it in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The Apostle Paul there writes that the rock that they drank from was Christ. So if the cycle was to be broken from the wilderness generation to the promised land generation, 
If they're going to be different from their parents, if they're going to enter the promised land, and if there's any hope for you and me, well, then someone must be struck in your place. This rock points to Jesus. Jesus was struck dead, and out of his death, those who trust in him have life. Jesus himself reflects on this story in John chapter 4 and John chapter 7, which we talked about a couple of months ago. Jesus says, whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. So when Jesus was struck dead, out of him flowed life. But this life isn't limited just to the future. This life begins right now for those who trust in Jesus. The the life that flows to those who trust Jesus is the promised Holy Spirit. So how can you live differently? We said that God must be the one who intervenes. And he has. God has provided the substitute who was struck in your place. God has provided a new life within you for for those who trust Christ to change the motivations, to change the loves, to change the underneath the surface. God must intervene and he has. So when your anger would boil over, when you would say, I need respect and I'm going to do whatever I can to get it. Well, then my friend, it's the Holy Spirit who is, who assures you that God is trustworthy, that God is patient, that Christ has given you life by giving his life. And whatever you think you need that you're not getting, you already have in him. So to break the cycle and to live differently, you need God who provides the substitute, who provides the spirit, who doesn't just polish off our behavior, but gives us new life. My friend, you can lean into this. You can lean in by examining the motives and the desires that lie underneath the surface of your behavior. And you can submit them afresh to the new life you have in Christ. So how can the promised land generation be different from mom and dad? How can they actually enter the rest of the promised land? Answer number two, they can do this not by their achievement. They can do this by God's blessing. Look at numbers 20 verses 14 to 21. Just going to do a couple overviews here. In verses 14 to 21, the new generation has another setback. Moses sends messengers to this area of Edom and he, they, he asked them, can we travel through your land? We won't take anything. If we do drink something, we'll pay you back. And Edom writes back, that he says, no. Moses asks again. Edom says, no again. The Israelites don't retaliate because the Edomites are their relatives. Uh, the Edomites are descendants of Esau, who was the brother of Jacob, later renamed Israel. Now, we then come to the next landmark death of the wilderness generation. That's the death of Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest. This happens in Numbers 20, verses 22 to 28. God tells Moses and Aaron and Aaron's son, Eleazar, to go on top of a mountain. And there, Aaron's position as high priest is transferred to his son, Eleazar. And when Aaron dies, then Moses and Eleazar go back to the bottom of the mountain, and all of Israel mourns for a month. Hang in there with me. Let's keep going to chapter 21. 
the tide starts to turn a little bit. They run into another opponent, another obstacle. This time it's from the Canaanites. The Canaanites fight against them and they initially have success against them. But then the Israelites go to the Lord. That sounds like a change from what their parents would have done. So look at Numbers 21, verse 2. They vow that if the Lord gives the Canaanites into their hand, they would devote their cities to destruction. Friend, I wonder if you can make sense of a verse like that to a non-Christian friend. This is one of those hard places in the Bible that we might not cover unless we walk through books of the Bible. By no means is this an exhaustive explanation, but how do we make sense of a verse like Numbers 21, verse 2? Well, here's a shot at it. Here's a few things to keep in mind. First thing to keep in mind is that God has already pronounced judgment on the Canaanites. And he did it 400 years prior to this. That's a long time to repent. God told their forefather, Abraham, that he would bring an end to the Canaanites' wickedness. Friends, God is patient towards sin, but God is not indifferent towards sin. Another thing to keep in mind, how do you make sense of Numbers 21, verse 2, is that not only is this judgment, it's prevention. The Canaanites that remained in the land would cause Israel to sin and stray from the Lord. That happens as the Bible continues. Another thing to keep in mind, Numbers 21, verse 2, you can't apply this straightforward to your life right now. God's people are no longer a single geopolitical nation. God's people are now comprised of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Our battles, our enemies are no longer physical, but spiritual. One other thing to keep in mind in light of this hard verse is to remember that God is impartial. It's not just the Canaanites who face this sentence from God. It's all of us who face this sentence from God, apart from God's grace. So we pick up Numbers 21, verse 3. The conflict with Canaan, it turns out well for Israel. But a little detail to notice. Where is the place of their victory? It's that last word of verse 3. It's this place called Hormah. Now again, there's been a lot of places mentioned in Numbers, but this one should ring a bell. The last time they were in this city of Hormah was at the end of chapter 14. What was going on there? Well, God had already told the Israelites after they had refused to go into the land, they say, you know what? I guess now we want to go in. So they try. God warns them, hey, I'm not with you guys. It's not going to work. They do it anyway. They get defeated and they get pushed back all the way to this city called Hormah. So the first time they're at Hormah, they are destroyed. The second time, their enemies are destroyed. What explains the difference? Is it just that after the first time they were defeated at Hormah, they, they, they got together, they watched the game film, they learned their mistakes, they practice a little bit more, and then they're stronger and they're ready for the next time? No, that's not what happens. The first time they're at Hormah, they are under God's judgment. The second time they're at Hormah, they are under God's blessing. That raises a crucial question for you. How do you get from underneath God's judgment to be into God's blessing? How does that change happen for you? 
Again, my Christian brother and sister, would you be able to answer that question for a non-Christian friend? Well, I think we get a clue of how that change happens right here in the text. Later on in Numbers, God will tell uh, the, the promised land generation to set up these places called the cities of refuge. Anyone who committed manslaughter, that is anybody who killed someone on accident, could flee to a city of refuge for protection. And God also says that whenever a great high priest dies, everybody who has fled to a city of refuge can go free. It's like the high priest's one last act of atonement. What has happened here in Numbers 20 and 21? A high priest has died. And then there is a victory for God's people. Now, what we might see that's a little bit fuzzy here, I think we see absolutely clearly when we get to Jesus. Jesus came to stand and represent his people before his father as their high priest. And when he dies, he takes the judgment that his people deserve so that his people can receive the blessing that he deserves. So my friends, how do you get from underneath God's judgment and into God's blessing? Is it just that you have to achieve some level of morality? I know that's how you and I instinctively think. Is it just, as long as I do good enough, then God will love me and accept me and bless me? That's not how it works. The way you get from underneath God's judgment and into God's blessing is through the death of the high priest, Jesus Christ, and trusting him. So that means, my friend, right now, you can have God's blessing. You can have it. And God, don't, get, don't misunderstand me. God's blessing doesn't look like Bentleys and bank accounts and material bounty. No, God's blessing is better than that. It looks like God's smile and God's presence forever. You can have that. Trust in the great high priest, Jesus, who lived and died in your place. Christian who, do, who do, does tr- trust in Jesus, you have God's blessing right now. So don't be like Israel the first time they're at Hormah and rely on yourself. Be like they are the second time they're at Hormah and go to God. Tell God this morning what we sang earlier. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. These for sin could not atone. You must save me and you alone. Well, old habits die hard, they say. This current generation's coming out of the wilderness, but the wilderness is still coming out of them. So how could they be different from their parents? How could they enter the rest that God has in store for them? Well, answer number three. They could do this not by their own protection, but by God's provision. Let's pick it back up in Numbers 21, verse four. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient along the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Okay, pause. Are we just at a loss at this point? I mean, really? Again? This again? Didn't you just make this exact same complaint and God gave you water? So just a couple of quick observations, lest we elevate ourselves too much above the Israelites. First observation, and you know this, I know you know this. 
is that sin gets easier the more you do it. And sin gets more entrenched the more you do it. So God, have mercy on us that we would be humble and vigilant against temptation to sin. Another quick observation, and I know you know this, sin is irrational. It's illogical. I mean, look at what they say in verse five. They say, there is no food. Well, then they say, well, we loathe this worthless food. Well, which one is it? Well, let's keep going. Verse six. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Fiery, likely because the burning sensation that these bites caused. And and they bit the people so that many of, of the people of Israel died. Verse seven. The people came to Moses and said, we have sinned against you, for we have spoken against the Lord against you and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. Now, this seems to me to be a new level of contrition that was unknown to their parents. Seems to me that they are receiving the Lord's discipline and appealing to God's grace. So, end of verse 7, Moses prays for the people. We can say this about Moses. He might not be entering the promised land, but he doesn't quit his job. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. I think what's going on here is that which is causing their death is symbolized as being crushed to death. And if a serpent serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So let's use our imagination a little bit, okay? Let's imagine for a moment that we are not in a climate-controlled room that we are not sitting on cushioned, comfortable chairs. At least I think they're comfortable. You might not think they are. Let's imagine for a moment that all of us are gathered together in a desert. And all around you, all that you can see are snakes. Now, maybe you're, maybe you're itching already, but I'm going to press a little bit more. Now, imagine if those snakes are crawling all over you. What would you do? You probably do anything you can to get the snakes off of you. You probably run away. You probably pick up a stick and try to throw it at it. You probably do anything you can to try to protect yourself. And then all of a sudden you hear from Moses, "Hey guys, look at this. What are you talking about?" The only way you would look at the bronze serpent is if you stopped trusting in how you can protect yourself is if you stopped trusting how you could save yourself and you started looking to what God has given you to save you. Is it any wonder that Jesus made this connection with the cross? Jesus says in in John 3, 14 to 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The Israelites looked to what caused their death being crushed on a pole. When Jesus was lifted on the cross, he was crushed to death, but thereby crushed what caused our death. My friend, turn from doing all you can to save yourself and look and live. This call to look and to live, God used it to bring Charles Spurgeon, the famous British pastor, to faith in Christ when he was 15 years old. 
He told this story a lot of times. If you haven't heard it, it's worth hearing him tell it. He starts like this. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and in despair now had it not been for the goodness of God and sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people. Now, the minister didn't show up that morning, snowed up, I suppose. So a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor or something of that sort went into the pulpit to preach and he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he didn't have anything else to say. And the text was look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 45, 22. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly. That didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. He began like this. My friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now that doesn't take a great deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. A man doesn't need to go to college to learn to look. You might be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man doesn't have to be rich to look, anyone can look, a child can look, but this is what the text says. And then it says, look on to me. I, said he, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text this way. Look unto me, Jesus, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Look to me, look to me. And he managed to spend 10 minutes on this. (laughs) He was at the length of his tether. And then he looked at me sitting out there in the pews. And I dare say with so few presents, He knew I was a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) Well, I did, but I wasn't used to remarks on my personal appearance being made from the pulpit. (laughs) However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. Friend, look and live. Find me afterwards. I'll be standing at that back door. If you have not turned to trust in Jesus alone, please come talk to me about it. How could this promised land generation be different from their parents? How could they break the cycle? How could they enter the rest of the promised land? They can do this lastly and quickly, not by their own performance, but by God's power. So back in Numbers 21, Israel takes another detour. This time they go around the area of Moab and God provides them more water in the wilderness. And then they come to an area that's directly east of the promised land, an area that borders the river Jordan. And there they face more opponents. 
Guys like Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan. This is the second half of Numbers 21. Now, when Moses retells these events at the beginning of Deuteronomy, he tells us about the types of cities that the Bashanites and the Amorites lived in. He says they were fortified cities with high walls and gates and bars. Now, again, this is something that should ring a bell because do you remember how the spies described the cities of the promised land back in Numbers 13? They say they live in fortified cities, big and large. So here we are again, almost 40 years later. Israelites face the same big cities, the same big people, and they have the same big God on their side. Numbers 21, 34, do not fear, for I have given him into your hand and all this people and all his land. This time, the Israelites go forward, leaning on God's power, not their performance. And so this display of God's power, they get victory over Sihon and over Og. This display of God's power is a pledge of God's promise. They could, because they still have a big task in front of them. They got all the promised land, all the land of the Canaanites. And then when they would go forward, inevitably, they would be intimidated again. They would be overwhelmed again. And when that would happen, what they could do is look back and remember, God has already proven himself to us. God has already achieved these victories over Og and over, and over Sihon. So you could call these victories in Numbers 21 as God's security deposit for the promised land. I bet you've had landlords before. What does your landlord want? When you move in, you give me two months rent up front. Does he want that just because he's greedy? A lot of you are like, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also because he wants to be sure that you can afford the bigger payment. These victories over Sihon and Og, like God's deposit, they could be sure that he can afford the full payment of the promised land. My Christian brother and sister, you have a big task in front of you. You have trials to endure. You have sin to slay. You have mission to fulfill. But you don't have to lean on your own performance. You can lean on God's power. When you would be intimidated, when you would be overwhelmed by what's in front of you, you remember the God who has proven himself to you. Not just in victories over Sihon and Og, greater victories than that. He has proven himself to you in the victory through his son over death and over sin. Let this be your confidence in this big task, that God has made a deposit, that God guarantees your full heavenly inheritance. He has given you the Holy Spirit. Friends, we should close. We've been asking, how does this generation be different from their parents? How can they enter the rest that God held out for them in the promised land? Well, I'm going to spoil the story for you. They will enter the promised land. Won't be to the book of Joshua. But even when they get there, something is still missing. And the same is true for you. My friend, you can get to the place in life you have always dreamed of and longed for. And something will still be missing. The book of Hebrews talks about this. It says in chapter four that there is a better rest awaiting the people of God. 
And it's found not in a place. It's found in a person. So whatever generation you're from, when you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you can rest from your labor. You will not need to earn your place with God by your performance. You will not need to prove yourself by your goodness. You look to Christ's life and death in your place and you can have rest and you can live differently and break the cycle. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. God, would every person in this room right now, would you cause us to turn to you, look and live, to be saved even to all the nations of the earth, to stop resting on the labors of our hands, to stop trusting in our performance and our achievement, but to look to the free gift of grace your blessing available in Christ. Would we trust him, not ourselves? And would you give us rest and make us new in light of it? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.